Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our first passage for today comes from Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. Listen for what God is saying to you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your people together, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. But you didn't want that. Look, your house is left to you deserted. I tell you, you won't see me until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the Lord's name. Our second passage comes from Matthew 21, uh, verses 1 through 11. In the tradition of the church universal, you're invited to join in reading and waving your palms when you come to the underlined portion. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He said to them, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that their master needs them. He sent them off right away. Now this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. Say to daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the donkey's offspring. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had ordered them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them. Then he sat on them. Now our large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others cut palm branches off the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? They asked. The crowds answered, It's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning again. Um, Again, my name is Emily McGinley, and I'm the pastor here at Urban Village Church Hyde Park Woodland, and I get to serve in ministry alongside many of the folks that you've seen up here and some who are not here. Uh, Rico, who is uh, on sabbatical, and and Rashada, whose voice is recovering after press week uh, in performing uh, djembe and um, with uh, tremendous lay volunteers like uh, Ashley and folks that you don't ever see up front, but who help us do what we do and be who we are. I'm grateful to be able to serve alongside so many gifted and faithful folks. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this day, this day of courage, Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, and all of what it represents um, for your church, for your people, and um, for the story that um, makes up who we are and helps us be your people in a complicated and fraught and broken and beautiful world that you love so deeply. So we ask that um, you would clear away the clutter in our hearts and our minds to help us hear and be attentive to what it is that your spirit might be saying to us today, that we might be um, encouraged, that we might be nourished, that we might be challenged, and that we might 
um, be called to um, the greater possibility that you envision for us in your world. We pray this with trust and with gratitude in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Last week, I was having a conversation um, with a UVCer, and they were talking about um, a recent family vacation that they had with their in-laws and how vacations with these family members are rarely a vacation for everyone involved. Uh, and as they prepared for this trip with their partner, they were kind of both girding themselves for uh, the messy and messed up emotional dynamics that were about to unfold. And being a therapist, uh, this person suggested that their partner kind of map out the emotional timeline for these gatherings and try to pinpoint when exactly things tend to go wrong, right? They figured out that it was usually around 72 hours when things start to fall apart. They're a little worn out from running around to all the sites, which is how this, uh, the in-laws like to do their uh, vacations. Um, and so the evening of that third day, they have dinner, they hang out, someone cracks open a bottle of liquor, and like a dysfunctional family genie, all the distorted unwishes of the family are granted. Um, he, he cracks a bad joke, she gets upset, they get self-righteous, she starts crying, he starts yelling, blah, 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 right? We all know this story in one version or the other, right? So the therapist invites their partner to think of how they might disrupt this family pattern. What could you do to interrupt this domino effect, the partner suggests? Um, uh, the partner suggests that maybe they would just leave as the bottle comes out, right? So the vacation commences, and sure enough, the evening of the third day, things start to unfold as familiar as a song stuck in your head, right? Out comes the bottle. The therapist gives a yawn, a stretch, and bids everyone a good night. But the partner, though, decides uh, that they're going to stay with their family, right? Thinking maybe, feeling maybe this, this time it might be different, right? But it's only about 15 minutes in when they realize that the first verse has ended and they're about to reach the chorus, right? They stand up. They announce that they're tired, they're going to bed, and everyone is astonished. Wait, what? What are you doing? Right? They ask accusingly. The partner is committed, though. I'm going to bed. They leave, wash up, put on their pajamas, and just as they slip into bed, the voices are getting heated. Right? They are astonished. It worked. <laughs> the vacation concluded, and while everyone else was emotionally wasted and angry, they were just fine. <laughs> the pattern had changed for them, and they had escaped its destruction. Our lives are shaped by patterns. Even if you don't actually work a traditionally calendar job, right? Most of us understand that the work week starts on and ends on, right? The weekend is never Wednesday and Thursday, right? It's Saturday and Sunday. We take the same route to school or to work or for our running path. We dress one way during the day, and when we get home from work, we change into what we used to call in my family home clothes. We speak one way with our supervisors, elders, clients, or neighbors, uh, and another way at home or among friends, right? We say, hello, how are you? And respond, I'm fine, right? How are you? Our patterns uh, are helpful. They, they can order our lives in the kind of grandest but also most mundane ways. They help us carve out pathways of predictability in a world of chaos. They help us know how to relate to one another. Patterns are useful. Patterns are also dangerous. They can make unnormal things feel very normal. They can lead us to be complicit in values that we want nothing to do with and engage in practices that lead to our own destruction. Patterns can make our minds dull in times when we need them to be sharp. And so for all the benefits that patterns offer, right, for all the benefits, there are some very real and even devastating consequences to unquestioningly handing our lives over to the convenience that patterns offer. 
So how do you get out of a problematic pattern? You disrupt it. Now in our passage for today, what we see is Jesus disrupting patterns that folks had grown all too familiar with and way too comfortable with. Passive acceptance at the hollow religiosity of church leaders. Comfortable complicity with empire values that violated deeply held ethics. Apathy towards those who are the weakest and most vulnerable among us. Maybe people were just too busy to notice, or maybe they noticed, but they were afraid what would happen if they spoke up. Or maybe they noticed, but they didn't know what to do, and so then did nothing. But it wasn't just that the people were confused or even afraid. They were trapped, spiritually enslaved on religious plantations that were less concerned with bearing fruit and more concerned with keeping people in chains. They were ideologically paralyzed by propaganda that spoke of war as peace. They were physically corralled by peacekeepers who did anything but keep the peace. A police force charged to protect and serve, but who they were protecting and what they were serving was unclear. And when you grow up in such spaces with everyone telling you you better keep your head down and your mouth shut, it becomes normative. And normative is a great narcotic that makes us passive and apathetic. Everyone had internalized and accepted that this was just the way things were, right? But Jesus knew that they were made for better. It wasn't just that Jesus wanted things to be different, for the Roman Empire to not consume people and power at such an astonishing rate. Jesus also wanted people to be different, liberated, whole, healed, and alive. And so we read in chapter 23 here in Matthew This shows up after his entry, but I had us read it beforehand the way that Luke does it. We see how Jesus stands over the city that he loves so deeply and weeps. He weeps at what could have been, at what was possible. Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather your people together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you didn't want that. And look how hollow and empty and deserted your house has been left. Jesus had tried everything to help them see that the way things are is not the way things have to be. Dinners with outcasts and elites at the same table, touching and healing the untouchable and incurable, giving tax collectors and extortionists a pathway toward reconciliation and community, healing the children of military leaders, respecting the power and wisdom of of women, elevating the responses of children, Jesus had done just about everything and anything to show folks that things could be different. But he realized that these were all just symptoms. What he needed to do was get at the root of the problem, which was spiritual anemia and political apathy. All of these actions that Jesus had taken, actions rooted in tenacious love, in unrelenting compassion, in generous grace, all of these were a kind of training ground for him. They prepared Jesus for the spiritual athleticism that this week required. Our tradition calls it Holy Week, but what it did was confront all that was unholy about the world that that kept everyone from living into God's vision of wholeness of life for all. On this week, we remember that spiritual athleticism and participate in a kind of triathlon of faith. On Maundy Thursday, we'll affirm that everything Jesus did, everything that we do, needs to be rooted in deep love and community, symbolized by a table. 
On Good Friday, we remember that true resistance means giving up whatever privilege we might have in our current realities, whether it is citizenship or English as your first language or different skin tones or power through money or education or social standing, whatever privilege we might have in our current realities, giving those up to be in solidarity with those who bear the greatest brunt of our death-dealing systems. And of course, on Holy Saturday, we sit in the in-between spaces of life, trusting that even in the midst of deep disappointment, even where there seems to be no evidence at all of it, that God is still active. For Jesus and for us today, Holy Week is a week of being reminded to practice spiritual resistance living in defiance of what is, to pursue and fight for what God has promised, and to believe and act a future into being. History belongs to such as these, to those who believe God's future enough to act it into being. Jesus said over and over again that the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is here because we are here. We bring God's kingdom come with our spirits, with our minds, and with our bodies. But in order for this to happen, in order to make change at a bigger level, we must try, train also to be spiritual athletes, right? To, to develop those inner resources and the spiritual depth that keeps us grounded to, in terrible and even terrifying circumstances. And there are many examples of why this matters and how this works. And one that comes to mind took place at a humble lunch counter almost 60 years ago. Segregation, you just couldn't go into a large department store and take a seat at a lunch counter. You couldn't try on clothing. You didn't like the conditions, but you did what was required. And we felt it was a affront to, to our own dignity, to our own worth. Every Tuesday night, I started attending these nonviolent workshops, and it was there that I met Jim Lawson. We saw a wrong, and with our bodies, we went into the situation to correct it. And he kept saying what we could do as students, as young people. He told us all about what Gandhi attempted to do in South Africa. We were trained in nonviolent direct action, focused on the lunch counters. And that's what our training was about. The role plan was conditioning us, preparing us, because we were going to face opposition, possibility of us being beaten. We had to be prepared. The first morning that we went downtown to participate in the sit-ins, I was assigned to go to Woolworth, and we would go in and take our seats, orderly, peaceful, reading a book, writing a paper, all day. And then we would come back the next day, waiting to be served. The white people in Nashville were stunned. I mean, they were more than stunned. Their way of life, they felt, was being disregarded. It was something deep down within me, moving me, that I could no longer be satisfied or go along with an evil system, that I had to be maladjusted to it. And in spite of all of this, I had to keep loving the people who denied me service. We knew that we were sticking our necks out to realize that you could get blind or your teeth could get knocked out. 
we had to make the point that sometimes you have to put yourself in harm's way. And in the process, you may stir up some violence, but you would not engage in the violence. We were attacked. People were beaten, lighted cigarettes, put out down people's bag, pulled ketchup and hot sauce on people. The police officials came in and arrested all of us. Holding my head high, I felt so free. I felt liberated. I felt like I crossed over. And this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. My mother felt that it would bring shame and disgrace on the family name for someone to be arrested. Let it shine, let it shine. I would never forget the letter she wrote saying you need to get out of that mess. And that's when I wrote her back and told her that I was doing what I thought was right. Over my head, oh Lord, I see freedom in the air. It was a faithful, humble, carefully planned and strategically executed protest. But in some ways it was barely a protest, right? Just to show up as your whole self, unapologetically and without shame marking a seismic shift for everyone as their imaginations turn just a quarter of an inch, right? That's such a simple act. Sitting at a lunch counter could be, as Representative Lewis put it, an affront to their way of life is evidence of how small their imaginations had become. The act of taking a seat and staying seated in spite of threats, harassment, humiliation, and eventually beatings, it ushered in a never-considered possibility. Maybe the, thing, the way things are is not the way things have to be. Imagine that. Now, most of us know that just a month ago, the global denomination that is the United Methodist Church voted to severely restrict the exercise of human dignity of LGBTQ-identified folks in the church. And on one hand, many people were harmed by these decisions, traumas of spiritual abuse, death-dealing theologies and broken relationships were stirred up, reenacted, or repeated. It was painful and maybe even fear-inducing for some folks who are particularly vulnerable to what these decisions could do. It would be easy to let all of this wash over us, to feel defeated and maybe even a little resigned, right? As uh, that, the one protester said, you know, it was just what you did. You just kind of had to keep your head down and go along with it, even if you didn't like it. Now, I don't take these events lightly, but I also have to kind of chuckle and shake my head when I think about those folks gathered at a convention center in St. Louis, as if they could really stop us from doing what we're doing, right? From being who we already know that we are. I wanted to tell those folks, friends, that ship has sailed, right? I wanted to say, good luck getting rid of us. We're out here planting churches in the suburbs, right? <laughs> When Jesus entered those gates, he came in with all the confidence and rootedness and love of someone who had both very few F's to give and yet also all the F's in the world to give, right? He didn't care what the church or the good, kind, moderate allies had to say or do. He would no longer allow his people to be further maladjusted to a system that thrived on their distortion. Existence is resistance, as the people say, and Jesus in his poor man's ticker tape parade, riding on a borrowed donkey, cheered on by folks that didn't count, resisted. 
He resisted by insisting that these people mattered and that their bodies were made for more than backs to stand on. On the other side of town, a glorious parade was taking, per- taking place, full of all the pomp and circumstance that Caesar could afford. Puppet King Herod rode on thoroughbred horses in lockstep behind Pontius Pilate, the symbol of power, authority, and wealth, and the crowd stood. They cheered, they stomped, and they clapped. A frenzied, gleeful, fearful, angry, and hungry crowd, imprisoned by cycles of violence and trapped by malnourished imaginations. In many ways, for Jesus, it didn't matter how the week would end. He had already won. The parade was a disruption of business as usual, a protest of possibility in an impossible situation, a statement of dignity in an undignified world, a declaration of self-determination in a government and a church that would put you in chains. By showing up, by speaking up, by rising up and casting a new vision for an alternative empire, Jesus had already won because he had planted that seed in the imaginations of the people. And that seed would take root and it would grow in an uncontrollable, weed-like spreading throughout, uh, throughout the soil of, of other imaginations, making people uncomfortable, itchy, unwilling to stay with the way that things were. And so on, today on Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, we carry that tradition forward as we enter Holy Week in the midst of an unholy world We cast a new vision for an alternative empire. We show up, we speak up, we rise up to be thy kingdom come, to live thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. God, we are grateful that you invite us into this time of remembering courage, of remembering that we have access to courage in you, to be people who stand not only for and with one another, but also rooted in your love. Help us to take on that cloak of compassion that seems sometimes impossible in a world full of hate. Help us to be people who care not for the things that this world would try to convince us that we ought to care about, and to live so deeply in your promise and believe so fully in your vision that we might begin to embody the kind of world and be kind of person that you have created and called us to be. So we lift all of this up to you and ask that you would journey with us as you did so long ago into this week that we might be strengthened and reminded, encouraged and renewed to have our imaginations blown open for what might be possible if we would stand with one another. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We remember that even as we stand at the top of the road to Jerusalem, that we do not stand alone, that we are part of a a legacy of those who have walked down roads like these, who have journeyed through Holy Weeks just like we are about to, that we are connected to um, a body of believers, a cloud of witnesses that stretch far before we came on earth and that will stretch far after 
we leave this earth. And so there will be words projected on the screen, and I invite you to, to join in on the bolded items um, in chorus and unison with those who have journeyed on this road. These are words that have been spoken nearly since the beginning of tables like these in the life of the church. And so I say to you, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise to a God who out of chaos created order, who out of nothing created everything, and in the midst of all of that pulled forth humans and called us to a special partnership of stewardship and co-creation of that order. We remember that Two, we couldn't believe that it was possible that there, this order and that this creation, this abundant creation, could really provide enough for everyone. And so somewhere along the way, we began to build systems and structures and alliances and tribes to begin to shut out others from being able to have access to the abundance of your creation, to be able to touch and taste your generosity. And as these, these relationships and systems and structures and tribes began to become governments and cities and political alliances and um, international boundaries, God came and saw this division and saw this hoarding and saw others who were, who were left hungry and left out. God said, let me show them what this can look like after sending prophets and priests and artists and poets to jog our, jog our imaginations awake, God said, let me come and show them what that can look like in the flesh. And so God came to earth in the form of Jesus, walked this earth, made relationships uh, with people who were not supposed to be in relationship with one another, talked about things in a way that others could access and be part of, shake, shake, shaking imaginations awake again, so that others could have a spark of what could be possible in their minds. And when those systems and structures that thrived on the fear and anxiety and separateness of others began to feel their power weaken, to feel their grasp loosen, they began to see that they needed to do something about this man. And so as Jesus could feel those powers closing in on him, he did what he always did throughout his life on earth, which was he gathered people around a table to enjoy a meal with friends and be reminded of how good this world could be when we are in deep and authentic relationship with one another. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his friends once more. And at some point during the meal, after they had maybe drank a little too much and eaten a little bit too much, Jesus gave thanks, uh, took a loaf of bread, gave thanks, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he passed it around to his friends, and he said, this, this is my body. It is broken for you, and I do so willingly, because when I stand with you, when I say I am with you in it, I mean it. And that means sometimes that when we stand together, our bodies are broken. And in a similar way, he took a cup. He poured out wine. Here we used grape juice in solidarity with our siblings in recovery. He poured out wine and he said, this cup and the contents in it represent both a promise and also a deep love poured out and shed for you. Because I love you so much and because I believe in you so much, I'm willing to put myself on the line 
which sometimes means broken bodies and shed blood. And I do so because I love you deeply. And so I ask you to do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, be reminded that we are in this together, that we stand together. And sometimes that means our hearts are broken, and sometimes that means our bodies are broken. Sometimes that means that tears are shed, and sometimes it means that blood is shed. Holy Spirit, pour yourself out upon each one of us and upon these gifts of bread and cup, that by them we might be reminded that we are not alone in the struggle and that the struggle is worth it and that the very fact that we struggle alone means that we have won. Help us to be reminded that even in our darkest and most alone moments, our most despairing times, that you are with us and that the fact that we continue to push forward, to stand up, to rise up and speak up for the dignity of others and even sometimes for our own dignity demonstrates a love that you have for, one of, for each one of us that we couldn't imagine on our own. Hear us now as we pray the prayer that your son Jesus taught his disciples so long ago, saying in whatever language or form that is closest to our hearts, our Father and Mother. Thank you.